This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. Part three of our limited edition 10-year anniversary special. I was going to live stream something to mark the occasion so that we could all hang out together. But I couldn't figure out how to do that. I know there's a way. So rather than having that close encounter with y'all, I'm rehashing an old CHP episode that was in dire need of rehashing. And considering the less-than-optimal state of relations between the USA and the PRC, as of this morning anyway, well, I for one think this story was worth dredging up and retelling. Maybe a lesson or two in there to guide us through these fetid and murky diplomatic waters we find ourselves in this year of the rat. We left off last time with the bombing of Laos and no end in sight of the Vietnam conflict. The U.S. was having a heck of a time trying to win those hearts and minds amidst this fog of war. But on the U.S.-China front, there was still hope. February 1971. Nixon referred to China as the People's Republic of China. In his State of the World speech, this was the first time the official name of China was used publicly by an American leader. Nixon had uttered those eight syllables prior to being elected, but this was the first time it was said by a president. The overtures Nixon gave in this speech were all well-received. Passport restrictions on China were lifted, as was the 20-year-old trade embargo. Then on March 21, 1971, the Chinese ping-pong team arrived in Nagoya, Japan for the World Championships. The American team had to beg, borrow, and steal to make their way to Japan to be part of this competition. And being ranked 24th in the world, no one was expecting any great things to come out of them. The star of the team by an astronomical unit was 19-year-old Glenn Cohen with his Long hair, floppy yellow hat, and tie-dye jeans. He was quite a colorful figure, and the press had a field day with him. He had secreted some uh, wacky tobacco in his luggage and was able to enjoy the occasional spliff during this moment in the spotlight. During the competition, on April 4th, one of those random things happened that just defines a moment in history. Glenn Cohen accidentally boarded the Chinese team bus that was en route to some tourist destination, some pearl farm. And through an interpreter, he spontaneously struck up a conversation with China's star player, Zhuang Zedong. They sat there on the bus and chit-chatted. No doubt everyone was freaked out at this outgoing uber-American with his hippie appearance. You didn't see that every day in China, especially during the Cultural Revolution, which was still going on, by the way. Zhuang took out a small gift from his uh, stash of Jianmian uh, Li, a little silkscreen banner or handkerchief with a picture of Huang Shan, and presented it to Cohen. Glenn Cohen was as ignorant as the next American as far as China went, but he made this amazing connection with the Chinese players. And the next day, he presented Zhuang Zedong with a t-shirt 
with a peace sign on it and the words, Let It Be. It was a song written by a popular British band from Liverpool. They had a bunch of hits during the 60s. Everything was caught on film, and these reporters and photographers thought they died and went to heaven at what was unfolding before their eyes. They came for a ping-pong tournament and got this instead. The press got it all on film, and it was all over the front pages. And the Japanese press showed these two shaking hands on the bus like they were long-lost brothers. And to make matters even more interesting, Cohen had mentioned how he sure wished the U.S. team could visit China to compete. Well, of course, this was big news in China, and at first, Joe and Mao were dead set against the notion of allowing the U.S. table tennis team into China for what was sure to be a spectacle. But Mao later came around, and in a famous story well documented by Mao's grandniece, late in the evening on April 6th, he called her into his bedroom, which was you know, also his study and where he hung out all the time, and he told her to go ahead and invite the American ping-pong team to China. All expenses paid, too. April 10th, 1971, the U.S. team crossed the Lawu border between Hong Kong and China, and off they went on this magical mystery tour that lasted 10 days. They took in the sights in Guangzhou, Shanghai, and Beijing, and when the Americans faced off against their Chinese opponents in the stadium, well, this was a mismatch to say the least. What the NBA All-Stars were to professional basketball... Well, that's who China was in the world of table tennis, and still are, I'm betting. So believe me, the Chinese team eh, gave a little face to the Americans, allowed themselves to be beaten a few times, and didn't humiliate the Americans too bad. There was even a banner hanging at the competition that said, Friendship first, competition second. <laughs> Thanks for the face, China. You could say all the hard work, secret negotiations, and sending clandestine notes back and forth and sending all these diplomatic signals and then setback after setback and one missed opportunity after another. Finally, there was no turning back now. The international press just jumped all over this one as soon as it was announced and the term ping-pong diplomacy was born. The U.S. team was given a dazzling welcome upon their arrival in China choreographed by Premier Zhou himself. And boy, when it came to organizing events, Zhou Enlai knew how to do it upright. You know, there is a credible theory that this whole thing that happened in Nagoya was a setup, and that Zhou Enlai had even plotted with Zhuang Zedong to try and engage the Americans and, I don't know, start a conversation or do something to break the ice. Who knows? Certainly sounded like something Premier Zhou might think up. The coverage was just unbelievable, and the whole idea of how an obscure sporting event in April of 1971 turned into front-page news all over the world was just a, a huge story in itself. Nixon was giddy from all the positive press it got and how it reflected well on him and sort of carved in stone this inevitability of U.S.-China diplomatic relations. If there ever was a time to grab this political capital and use it for the most difficult, sensitive, and Sisyphean task of all, now is the time. Hanging out there for all to see was the largest 
festering wound, a great malignancy on the U.S.-China relationship. The Taiwan question, still unresolved since World War II. They were our friends and close allies going back to the days of Sun Yat-sen. We fought the good fight with them in World War II, and we backed them to the hilt in the Civil War against Mao's communists. When they retreated to Taiwan in 1949, we stuck with them all these years and protected them by putting them underneath our strategic military umbrella. And they had always been a goldmine of intelligence and insight into China. And we had a lot of American troops there as well. All these years, Mao had barked but never bit. The PLA never invaded Taiwan because it meant war with the United States. Suddenly, now Taiwan wasn't such a matter worth fighting for the Americans. But the issue was of paramount importance to the PRC, what we call a core interest today. Nothing even came close to this in terms of its relative importance compared to all other issues. Kissinger knew, and Nixon knew. There was no use even bothering to talk to China unless this issue was dragged out, put on the table, and discussed definitively, decisively, and once and for all. Meanwhile, April 14th, the U.S. ping-pong team was still in Beijing, and Premier Zhou hosted a banquet for them at the Great Hall of the People, no less, and he toasted them and said, quote, You have opened up a new chapter in the relations of the American and Chinese people. I am confident that this beginning again of our friendship will certainly meet with the majority support of our two peoples, end quote. And uh, never anyone to miss an opportunity to ask an uncomfortable question. Glenn Cohen had asked Premier Joe that night what he, what he thought about the hippie movement in the United States. And after someone explained to him what a hippie was, Joe said, quote, Youth wants to seek the truth, and out of this search, various forms of change are bound to come forth. When we were young, it was the same too. End quote. Joe and I, ladies and gentlemen... The bus was really gathering momentum now. All that remained was to discuss dates and, of course, for Nixon to figure out how to handle Taiwan. To reciprocate China's graciousness, the Chinese team was invited to play in the U.S., and Joe accepted the invitation. So the love fest was still going on, but there was nothing concrete about who or when a meeting might take place until the Pakistani ambassador visited Nixon in Palm Springs with a message from Zhou Enlai that read, quote, At present, contacts between the PRC and the U.S. are being reviewed. However, if relations between China and the U.S. are to be restored fundamentally, the U.S. must withdraw all its armed forces from China's Taiwan and Taiwan Straits area. A solution to this critical question can be found only through direct discussions between high-level responsible persons of the two countries. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Therefore, the Chinese government reaffirms its willingness to receive publicly in Beijing 
a special envoy of the President of the United States, or even the President of the United States himself, for a direct meeting and discussions. Of course, if the U.S. President considers that the time is not yet right, the matter may be deferred to a later date. As for the modalities, procedure, and other details of the high-level meeting and discussions in Beijing, as they are of no substantive significance, it is believed that it is entirely possible for public arrangements to be made through the good offices of President Yahya Khan. End quote. Even though Joe had mentioned meeting publicly, Nixon wasn't quite ready for that yet. It had to be a total surprise, a fait accompli before he could announce a presidential visit and bask in that moment of historic glory. Kissinger wasn't Nixon's first choice for envoy, but in the end, he turned out to be the best man for this sensitive, historic, and monumental task. Nixon replied to Zhou Enlai on May 10, 1971, sending the following response, referring to himself in the third person, as was his habit. Quote, President Nixon has carefully studied the message of April 21, 1971, from Premier Zhou Enlai, conveyed through the courtesy of President Yahya Khan. President Nixon agrees that direct, high-level negotiations are necessary to resolve the issues dividing the United States of America and the People's Republic of China. Because of the importance he attaches to normalizing relations between our two countries, President Nixon is prepared to accept the suggestion of Premier Zhou Enlai that he visit Peking for direct conversations with the leaders of the People's Republic of China. At such a meeting, each side would be free to raise the issue of principal concern to it. In order to prepare the visit by President Nixon and to establish reliable contact with the leaders of the Chinese People's Republic, President Nixon proposes a preliminary secret meeting between his assistant for national security affairs, Dr. Henry Kissinger, and Premier Zhou Enlai or another appropriate high-level Chinese official. Dr. Kissinger would be prepared to attend such a meeting on Chinese soil, preferably at some location within convenient flying distance from Pakistan, to be suggested by the People's Republic of China. Dr. Kissinger would be authorized to discuss the circumstances which would make a visit by President Nixon most useful, the agenda of such a meeting, the time of such a visit, and to begin preliminary exchange of views on all subjects of mutual interest. If it should be thought desirable that a special emissary come to Peking publicly between the secret visit to the People's Republic of China of Dr. Kissinger and the arrival of President Nixon, Dr. Kissinger will be authorized to arrange it. It is anticipated that the visit of President Nixon to Peking could be announced within a short time of the secret meeting between Dr. Kissinger and Premier Zhou Enlai. Dr. Kissinger will be prepared to come from June 15th onward. It is proposed that the precise details of Dr. Kissinger's trip, including the location, duration of stay, communication, and similar matters, be discussed through the good offices of President Yahya Khan. For secrecy, it is essential that no other channel be used. It is also understood that this first meeting between Dr. Kissinger and high officials of the People's Republic of China be strictly secret. End quote. On June 2nd, Zhou's reply was positive and that he warmly welcomed a presidential envoy to Beijing. 
While the U.S. ping-pong team was in Beijing having their great moment, Nixon released a statement through his press secretary that stated, quote, In the coming year, I will carefully examine what further steps we might take to create broader opportunities for contacts between the Chinese and American peoples, and how we might remove needless obstacles to the realization of these opportunities. I ask the Undersecretary's Committee of the National Security Council to make the appropriate recommendations to bring this about. The United States is prepared to expedite visas for visitors or groups of visitors from the People's Republic of China to the United States. The U.S. currency controls are to be relaxed to permit the use of dollars by the People's Republic of China. Restrictions are to be ended on American oil companies providing fuel to ships or aircraft proceeding to and from China, except on Chinese-owned or Chinese-chartered carriers bound to or from North Vietnam, North Korea, or Cuba. U.S. vessels or aircraft may now carry Chinese cargoes between non-Chinese ports, and U.S.-owned flag carriers may call at Chinese ports, end quote. The details for Kissinger's secret meeting were meticulously hashed out in May of 1971. By this time in China, Mao's anointed successor, Lin Piao, was already in hot water. And in a few months, he and his supporters will be fighting for their political survival. This was all playing out in the background. We had no idea. Nixon had responded to Joe's letter by writing, quote, President Nixon reciprocates Premier Zhou Enlai's anticipation of the meeting between the Premier and Dr. Kissinger. He considers it a hopeful first step in improving relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China. End quote. Nixon had a ton of explaining to do to the pro-Taiwan faction in the government. The U.S. ambassador to Taiwan at the time was longtime American diplomat Walter P. McConaughey. Nixon had told this great career diplomat that it was up to him to explain the situation with their Republic of China allies in Taiwan. Nixon had said, quote, Just say that we, that are, as far as the Republic of China is concerned, that we have, we know who our friends are, and we are going to continue our close, friendly relations with them. End quote. Nixon further said, where Chiang Kai-shek and the Taiwan leadership were concerned, quote, they must be prepared for the fact that there will continue to be a step-by-step, a more normal relationship with the other, the Chinese mainland, because our interests require it, not because we love them, but because they're there, end quote. And as far as the seat at the UN and the all-powerful Security Council, Nixon downplayed the matter and had said to Ambassador McConaughey that Taiwan should not put so much faith in that institution. He said, quote, I would just say, the hell with the UN. What is it anyway? It's a damn debating society. What good does it do? End quote. As Nixon pondered the decoupling from Taiwan, he urged Kissinger to do everything he could not to make these discussions with Joe look like the U.S. was selling Taiwan down the river without a paddle, which was essentially what was being done. The dates of July 9th to 11th, 1971 were selected for the secret visit by Kissinger. When the time came, Kissinger and his team of Winston Lord, John Holdridge, and Richard Smyser flew to Saigon, then Bangkok, New Delhi, and finally to Rawalpindi, just south of Islamabad. 
If anyone was wondering what Nixon's national security advisor was doing, they would be told he was in Asia on a fact-finding trip under the direction of the president. Before sunrise on July 9th, Kissinger secretly boarded a Pakistani Airways Boeing 707 for Beijing. Besides themselves, the only other people who knew about this were Nixon and Alexander Haig. To explain his absence for two days, Kissinger's staff maintained that he was recuperating from stomach problems. Being a Westerner in Pakistan and all, it was a perfectly believable ploy. Kissinger and his team flew six hours across China and landed in Beijing around noon. Marshal Ye Jianying and the veteran diplomat Huang Hua met him at the airport. They were whisked to Diaoyutai in western Beijing, where foreign dignitaries were ensconced and where so many meetings had taken place with visiting big shots. Kissinger, well, he didn't know it at the time, but North Korean dictator Kim Il-sung was in situ at Diaoyutai on a state visit. Kissinger got to his villa, and four hours later, Zhou Enlai entered his room. And you had the great photo op of the two meeting and shaking hands. Between having to also deal with Kim Il-sung and all the sightseeing planned for the visiting Americans, there really wasn't more than perhaps 24 hours reserved for face-to-face discussions. After all the pleasantries were exchanged, they sat down on one of those patented Chinese overstuffed sofas, and Kissinger was given a free lesson in diplomacy from the master. Henry Kissinger was only 48 years old, the visiting team sitting next to a man who was not only the premier of China, outranking him a few notches, diplomatically speaking, but a man who was a true revolutionary and a nation builder, as much as Jefferson, Madison, or Hamilton were to the founding of America. He was a statesman extraordinaire, very respected in diplomatic circles. His contemporaries on the world stage had been guys like Roosevelt, de Gaulle, Churchill, Nehru, Gandhi, Stalin. When Kissinger was born in 1923, Joe was already a seasoned 25-year-old revolutionary, living in Paris and playing a role in all the history about to unfold in China. And here was Kissinger, sitting with this great and elegant man who modestly hit his street cred and appeared so cool and calm and collected, in control, without acting like he was in control. And in the next episode, we will pick up here in this first meeting between Zhou Enlai and Henry Kissinger during the July 1971 secret trip. Needless to say, after so many years, there was a lot to catch up on. Do consider coming back for that. Until then, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from L.A., City in the Smog. Join me next time, mis amigos y amigas for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Did I mention at the outset that this is a special 10-year anniversary edition? No? Well, it is. Take care, everyone.